I'm Jonathan Green, this is Lost and Found, and this week, birds. Buffy Gorilla. Who doesn't like a Sunday bird? That perfect roast chicken that you pull out of the oven. It's crispy and juicy and delicious. I've found the perfect recipe. The only problem is it starts on Friday night to be able to get that perfect Sunday bird. It's a recipe from Heston Blumenthal and he claims it will give you the juiciest of all chickens. So we're gonna put it to the test. First step, brining the bird. So Heston recommends starting with a poulet de bresse, which is a black-footed or blue-footed chicken that you find in a certain region of France. However, not being in or near France, we're going with a high-quality free-range chicken that we picked up at a local butcher shop. We're gonna grab the chicken out of the fridge. So joining me in the kitchen is my able assistant named Ben. Hello there. So we've plunked the chicken into a big pot and we're covering it with water. And why are we doing that, Ben? So we can make an 8% brine solution. Um, We've got to know how much water we put in there so we can calculate 8% of it. A chicken that uses maths. I hope it's going to be worth it. I really do. Let's add some more water. So our chicken is fully submerged. So we now know that we've used two liters plus 645 times two. Give us a minute. We'll be back with the math. All right, Ben, how much water did we use? So we used 3,290 milliliters of water. So we need 263 grams of salt, well, 0.2. That's a lot. That is a lot. So we are going to make the salt water brine for our free-range chicken now. All right, so we're going to put the brine on to boil and then we will cool it and then the next steps begin tomorrow. Matthew Crawford. And that's the Regent Honey Eater, a beautiful black and gold inhabitant of eucalypt forest and woodland. But it's critically endangered. We've lost so many of these birds. There's only a few left now. There could be as few as 500 individuals in the wild. There's a lot of effort being put into breeding the bird in captivity. There's an amazing program going on at Turonga Zoo. And there are releases going on of those captive birds into the wild. I saw one of those. I saw 40 birds released from their, uh, from their enclosures to go free into the woodland habitat that's their home. That's only one aspect of conservation. We need to preserve the remaining habitat and do as much planting as we can of the kind of box iron bark uh, woodlands that they like so much. And then fingers crossed, we can see a recovery. Jane Valentine is the presenter of Afternoons on ABC Sydney. His special subject is the puffer jacket. This is the time of year when when a a young person's fancy turns naturally towards a pair of Lululemon leggings and a sporty puffy jacket. Is this, though, ethically and environmentally sound? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think, essentially, you could just ask yourself, how much did you pay for that jacket? 
potentially, the more you pay for it, the more ethical it is, assuming that everything that's on the label is correct. So your highest ethical standard, before we get to this sort of Uber standard, is traceable down or responsible down standard. This tends to say that that company has looked at the entire supply chain of the down in the jacket from egg to, you know, being stuffed in your puffer and has decided that that's the whole process is humane. Just take us back to that. I mean, the humanity of this is the key point. Where, where does that down come from? Well, you do end up getting a bit, bit Marx Brothers in this. How do you get down from a duck? Now, unfortunately, if if you've paid, you know, $60 for your full-length coat, the potential is that the down inside your jacket was live plucked from the breast of a bird somewhere in China. China supplies 80% of the world's down. The down comes from the breast of usually geese and ducks. Uh, they naturally produce this lovely down that we then harvest to put in our jackets. <laughs> Live plucking is as awful as it sounds. There's a, a living bird, you rip the feathers off its chest and then you put it back in the cage and let it grow some more and when they've grown back, you rip them off again. How quickly and can that occur? For harvest a year? potentially, three to four harvests a year, and the bird will live for four or five years. And what you might be getting from the bird is eggs and and down. So you get four years of eggs and feathers out of that one bird. Now, the alternative, what what the down industry and the jacket industry tends to say if, if they're being ethically responsible is, we don't do that. We harvested the down at the same time that the bird was killed for meat. Now, the problem with that assertion is that you kill a bird for meat mm -hmm. at sort of six to nine months, because that's ideal eating time, no down at that stage. Some feathers, but you get best down after a year or two when the bird's a bit older. So you see there's something not something quite... Something not quite matching up there. Not quite matching up there. You look at the popularity of the down jacket and you are talking thousands of tons of down around the world. Where is it all coming from? Once upon a time, didn't it used to be people under great duress and with in, in, in extreme environments crawling up to the nests of particular species of bird and taking little bits of feather from between the twigs of their nesting? There is this one beautiful story, which is the story of the Ida duck. And I managed to, to meet, or, you know, over the phone, John Svensson from Iceland, mm. who has on his, his farm in Iceland 55 nesting pairs of Ida ducks. The Icelandic and the Norwegians and, you know, various parts of Russia have been harvesting Ida duck nests for a thousand years. And it's exactly that. The Ida duck lives in the wild, comes into nest on the coast of Iceland, makes a nest, sheds its own down voluntarily to keep its eggs warm. And what the farmers start to do is collect the down, but replace the down with dry hay or something else to keep the eggs okay. warm. Eggs hatch, ducks go off, live in the wild, come back and nest. It is, in fact, pretty much the only known farming relationship with a wild animal where the wild animal simply lives its life and we collect its thing. Glorious. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, we don't kill it to get it. And if, and if, if, if you had a, a, a jacket made from the <laughs> nicely left down of the Ida mm. duck, what would that mm. cost you? Well, the Ida duck sells for around 1500 a kilo. Um, a jacket also is usually around five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars $10,000 uh, is what you would expect to pay. Ida downs were originally made from Ida duck and were, were an item for, for the aristocracy. They were given as wedding presents to kings because they were so extraordinary. So when you go to nameless 
mass retail outlet and buy mm-hmm. your puffer for maybe a hundred, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, you're probably in receipt of something which has been cruelly plucked from the mm. bleeding chest of living ducks. Quite possibly. And it's been, see, I think you're even overstating it there because you can get, you can get a full-length jacket at chain store for yeah. 70 bucks. You know, you're getting, you're getting short jackets and vests for $30, $40, $50. So that cannot be ethically sourced. And even if you're paying two, three, four, five hundred $500 for the jacket, the standards, are, you have to ask yourself, how well enforced are they? What really, you know, the, with the best will in the world, can these thousands of tons of down around the world all be coming from ethical sources? Better yet, go for synthetics. Or you can get some recycled plastic bottles and stick that in your puffer. (laughs) Just as (laughs) cosy. James Puffer Valentine. I'm flying off now to the Icelandic fjords. All right, day two of the perfect roast chicken. The chicken has been brining for six hours, so now it's time to give it a bath to ensure that all the salt from the brine is rinsed off. Let's do that next. Brining makes the skin a little bit tender, so be careful when you're handling your chicken. So the next step is the ice bath step. So you boil some fresh water, and then we're going to plunge the chicken into the boiling water, and then immediately into an ice bath. And you do this two times. So the water is boiling, so we're gonna dunk the chicken into the boiling water and let it cook for 30 seconds and then put it into the ice bath. Then you bring the water back up to a boil and plunge the chicken back in. So once it's been dunked twice, then you pat it down with some paper towels and then you cover it with a loose cloth to put it in the fridge to let it dry overnight. So that would be Saturday night, day two of the perfect roast chicken. Dr. Leo Joseph is Director of the Australian National Wildlife Collection at the National Research Collections Australia. It's run by the CSIRO. Leo, I, I imagine, I mean, we see birds in the cities, but I imagine that the, the city is not necessarily a, a friendly place for birds. Well, that's true, but uh, there's plenty of birds that do very well in urban environments. And as I cast my mind around the major Australian capitals and inland cities and put myself in the position of, a, say, an overseas bird watcher visiting Australia, they could certainly see a lot of interesting birds in Australian cities. Because birds, I guess, adapt to that, that change in environment as a, as a city grows and the cities uh, select their populations. Well, you've used the key word there, select. Many birds do, but many birds don't. We don't, for example, see many peaceful doves in the southern cities, whereas we see lots of crested pigeons. We see lots of galahs. And we see in the northern cities, I can think of the uh, bushstone curlews that do very well in places like car parks of Queensland University in, in Brisbane, but that's because there's no foxes around, whereas in the southern cities, you won't see a stone curlew anywhere near a city. Is there one bird in particular that's just, that cities were made for this bird? Well, I guess you'd have to say the European rock dove 
the well-known as the avian rat, the pigeons that we see flying around cities, I suppose they spring to mind mm. as a bird that's doing extraordinarily well in cities around the world. They Silver gulls don't do too badly either. But uh, that's a house sparrows are an interesting one because they've done well in cities around the world, but they seem to be on the decline a little bit. It's an interesting thing too because many of the the environments that that birds live in outside of cities are, are are changing. Does that potentially drive other birds to experiment with the city to give the city a go if if where they normally live is perhaps not as hospitable as it used to be? Well, there's probably a spectrum of answers there, and I'm thinking of an of a species where the answer is more in the yes area. Many people in Eastern Australia will be familiar with the coel, which is a large cuckoo that loves to call in the middle of the night on hot <laughs> summer nights. Yes. And uh, coels have been um, making their presence felt in the last few decades in, in uh, Eastern Australia, moving south a bit, where I live in Canberra, they're now a regular part of the environment. And I guess that's because of a number of factors related to changing food availability and availability of hosts, that is the birds that they parasitise in the urban environments. Changes outside the urban environments may not lend themselves to a direct transition for the species who are adversely affected into the cities. Uh, that's, a, that's probably not such an easy transition. The cities are not necessarily... Uh entirely safe environments for, for bird life. Mm. There, are, there are many, many threats and perils. Yes, indeed. And of course, birds, like all animals, face these threats and perils no matter where they live. But as I live in a city, I'm particularly aware of some of the terrible things that confront birds in our cities. For example, uh, lapwings, which uh, nest on the ground in, in grassed areas, have to deal with lawnmowers destroying their nests, no matter how aggressive they do get, and many people will be familiar with how aggressive lapwings can get, a lawnmower is going to wipe out their nest. And there's just being hit by cars and injured by cars and all those sorts of things that aren't confined to cities, but they're the kinds of perils that birds face. Another interesting peril is, is caused by birds themselves. So, um, the urban environments of Australian cities have become very favourable for a native bird, the noisy miner. <laughs> and the noisy miner is a honey eater, but it belongs to a group of honey eaters that are extraordinarily aggressive. And the environments of uh, Australian urban environments is well and truly tipped in favour of noisy miners. And what they do is exclude all birds smaller than themselves and they're extraordinarily aggressive birds and they've been declared a threatening process in at least New South Wales, I think. So there you have an interesting example of, a, of an urban environment providing a situation that favours a very aggressive native bird which then excludes and thus diminishes the populations of other birds. Dr Leo Joseph, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And that's the swift parrot, uh, which is a lorikeet-like parrot, if that makes sense to you. It's a parrot that feeds on nectar. So like the Regent honey eater, it's uh, searching for nectar, and unfortunately that's kind of where the problem lies there as well. The swift parrot is also listed as uh, critically endangered federally. It 
It's interestingly a migrating parrot. It breeds in Tasmania, and also it's being predated upon by the sugar glider, which was introduced to Tasmania in the 19th century. So there's a bit of pressure at that end. And then in the winter months, when it comes across Bass Strait to the mainland, and it ranges up from Victoria all the way up on the western slopes of the Great Dividing Range up to Queensland it's losing some of that feeding habitat as well. But if you do happen to spot them, there's a few more swift parrots around than Regent honey eaters. You'll spot it with its long, tapering, pointed tail. And true to its name, it's a very fast flyer. You'll see it speeding past in flocks of 8, 10, 12 birds, making that peeping call to themselves as they fly along at great speed. So it's Sunday morning, roast chicken day. Very excited about this. So you've got to get up early to start the process because the cooking of this chicken could take four to six hours. So we're going to preheat the oven to 60 degrees Celsius. All right, that's the right setting, but I think 60 is going to be hard to find. All right, I think that might be good. Let's test it with a thermometer. That's what Heston says to do. The oven is preheated. We've checked the temperature. It is roughly 60 degrees. I think our oven isn't quite as precise as Heston's. So let's get the chicken out of the fridge and pop it into the oven. It's a good looking bird. So the goal is to cook the chicken to 60 degrees C internally. It will cook low and slow so it won't dry out and the brining and the low cooking temperature will ensure that we pack in that moisture to get the best roast chicken we can get. Dr Holly Parsons is the Urban Bird Program Manager at Birds in Backyards. Holly, before we get to urban birds and the counting of them because that exciting annual event's about to take place... What do we do to get more around our place? It's basically all about the plants. Plants are key. It's getting native plants in the ground wherever you can. Uh, Certainly will help create a great space that we can share with our bird life. We want flowers. Uh, We want tree. I mean, does does it matter... I mean, there are so many kinds of plants, so many kinds of native plants. Um, And I guess if you were particularly scientific about it, you would know what might be around bird-wise in your part of the world and what they might like as as a, a place to roost or eat. Knowing what you've got in your local area is a really great place to start. So, and it doesn't mean you have to be a total bird nerd about it. You can um, just start to pay attention a little bit more, you know, make a cup of tea, go and sit in your garden, see what comes through. And that does give you an idea for when you're wanting to put in some plants for birds as to the types of birds you're going to get. And the plants that we tend to promote are lovely and big and showy, you know, I'm thinking bottle brushes and big grevilleas and things, but they tend to attract the birds that are doing really well anyway. You know, you know, they're attracting your rainbow lorikeets in, on the east coast. They're attracting your noisy miners, birds that can be really quite aggressive, even though they're native, and that can cause problems for other birds. So, wherever you can, you know, it's always good to go with smaller flowers, plants that attract a lot of insects. So things like melaleucas or kunzias that have got little white flowers are great for attracting insects, which means you're going to get lots of insect attracting birds in your garden as well. And 
it's all about different heights and layers of vegetation and what you've got the space for. You know, you don't have to cram out every inch of your garden. Have you got um, stuck into this plants? yourself? Have you have you had a crack in your backyard? I have, I have. And so, you know, my garden shares its space with a two and a half year old, uh, with some dogs, with some chickens. Um, so we've got some good melaleucas out the back that, you know, I put in um, oh, probably three years ago now as tube stock, so really tiny. Um, and they're now, you know, double my height. You know, they've grown really well and they're nice and dense and thick. And, you know, you get some uh, little birds moving through them. And I've actually done um, most of my planting in the front yard rather than the backyard. Yep. Um, so, I've, you know, I've got a great garden bed. I went to my local council nursery and got a hold of some really great locally native plants, so plants that we know do well in, you know, our local environment because they've been here for many, many, many years before us. Uh, and so I got a hold of those plants and I put in lots of vines, I put in some grasses and lots of um, native small grevilleas that are going to grow nice and dense and provide really good habitat once they establish a little bit more for lots of birds. Now, this is a this is a fairly contentious area. I think your views on the feeding of birds. Oh, you've gone Ooh. controversial. <laughs> uh, oh, look, bird feeding is something that benefits people more than it benefits birds. There are lots of ways that we can do some damage with bird feeding. If we're feeding inappropriate foods, if we're not keeping things very clean, there's, then there's increased risk of disease spreading amongst bird populations because you've yep. got lots of birds descending in the same place. Um, but I don't think we can discount the fact that feeding birds brings a lot of joy to a lot of people and that's really important. That connection with nature is something that we are losing uh, and so where we can hang on to that, I think it's a really great thing. Now, we're about to head into another Aussie backyard bird count. What's the timing of that? When should we be looking forward to that? So third week in October is, okay. is our national um, bird count, the Aussie Backyard Bird Count. So the 21st to the 27th, uh, you download the Aussie Backyard Bird Count app and you simply... In 20-minute increments, as many times as you would like, do a 20-minute bird count, letting us know everything that you see in your backyard, your front yard, your favourite green space. And you can do that as many times as you like over that week. Holly, thank you very much. Dr Holly Parsons, Urban Bird Program Manager at Birds in Backyards. All right, we're back. It's still day three of the perfect roast chicken. The chicken came out of the oven at 60 degrees C at about four hours, and it's been resting for the required one hour before the final stage, which is to heat up some ground nut oil in a pan for 10 minutes, and then you brown the chicken from the outside. So you can crisp up the skin without ruining the integrity of the moist meat on the inside. Looks like it's starting to brown up. Once it's finished browning on each side, you suck up the juices from the pan and you re-inject them back into the bird using a sharp pointed syringe or a flavor injector. It looks pretty good on the outside. So now we're gonna cut into it and see 
how moist it is. And the ultimate taste test is my English partner, Ben, because he knows for Sunday bird. How does it look, Ben? It looks good. It didn't look good when it came out of the oven. It was kind of gray and pasty and not very appetizing, but now it's been fried. As most things do, it looks pretty good. So I'm gonna cut into the breast across the grain and just take out a chunk to taste. Because the breast is usually the driest part. Ooh, it's literally oozing moisture. All right, got a little chunk. Wow, yeah, it's super moist. Three days moist? Mm, but very good. If you have the time, you might want to give it a try. You've been listening to Lost and Found, a Blueprint for Living production this week on birds. You heard from James Valentine, ABC broadcaster, Dr Leo Joseph, Director of the Australian National Wildlife Collection, National Research Collections Australia, CSIRO, Dr Holly Parsons, Urban Bird Program Manager at Birds in Backyards, Matthew Crawford, RN's resident ornithologist, and Buffy Gorilla, with help from Ben Pawson. Producers are Mira Adler-Gillies and Buffy Gorilla. Technical production by Tim Simons. I'm Jonathan Green. Don't you know the bird? Well, everybody knows that the bird is aware. No, well,